Have you ever in your life, and I'm sure the answer is yes for everyone in here, been at the point where you fantasized about something or, or you really just, just dreamed it up in your head to be a certain way, and then when you received what you've always desired and fantasized about, it wasn't what you thought it was going to be? The Facebook picture didn't match. GCU's student came in on the first day of class thinking it was a syllabus, and they leave with homework. And, and it just it begins to get more and more frustrating. The longer you live, the more disappointed you will become because you anticipated life to be something, yet you're living in something else. You got married never intending for you or your spouse to get cancer. You had children never intending for any of your children to live a life apart from Christ, and now they're in a self-destruction path. You've been at the point where you're just so tired of life, and you anticipated life to be a certain way, maybe even marriage, but now the best option for you seems to be depression and suicide, just like it was for John. I'll never forget, my parents divorced when I was five or six years old, and my dad had a visitation rights. And the way the visitation went is he would get us every other weekend. The meeting place was, was my grandmother's house. My mom would drop me off on Friday after work, and the plan was my mom drops me off at 5. My dad piss, picks me up at 6. I was 5 or 6 years old, and I kid you not, my mom would drop me off, and I'll never forget. My dad drove a big van um, that looked like the van off of um, Scooby-Doo. Um, even had the same smoke coming out the windows. And, and he, he, he had visitation time at 6 o'clock to pick me up. And, and I would go out to my grandma's porch. And I kid you not, I'm 6. I would, I would put a chair on my grandmother's porch. And she lived in an apartment complex. And there was a little gated patio. And I would always do this and just look over to see if I saw that red van coming. And it never came. And I did that, no kidding, Every other weekend, after weekend, after weekend, after weekend, after weekend. And the reason why it began to pain me is because I had all this anticipation that when dad picks me up, we're going to go fishing. When dad picks me up, he's going to teach me how to ride a bike. When dad picks me up, and I'm building up all this anticipation, yet he never comes. He never shows up. And here's what happens to me, a a vulnerable heart at such a young age who's supposed to be guided by the Father wasn't guided by the Father. And I became just broken and I became hungry. But I, I have to be honest with you, I became angry. I became bitter. And I became self-destructive. But you know what? If there's a God, for some reason, you gave me this type of Father that isn't fair... So I almost began to rebel against God, yet at the same time I called myself an atheist. Because I would be angry at him, so therefore I would say, you don't exist. But if he didn't exist, who was I angry at? Do you know what I'm saying? So I became bitter, I became angry, and I began to rebel. I made tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of poor decisions with my life because I was so bitter that my father didn't care about me. Anybody know what I'm talking about in here? And, and the crazy thing is, is that I took it out on God, the very one who gave me life. 
That's how I responded to the situation of a fantasy in my head that didn't play out the way I thought it was supposed to play out. Let me just tell you all in the room and in the chapel and those listening, you will come across a situation in your life that you fantasize it and anticipate it to be differently than it actually turns out. How do you respond? See, the scripture we just read, it's Palm Sunday. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And what's interesting about this time in Jerusalem is that this was the time that was predicted by Daniel the prophet 483 years prior to this point. So if you're in here and an atheist, let me speak to you a little history. That's historical evidence in here. Do you recognize that when Jesus came in, the very first people that saw him, it was during Passover, they say there was about a quarter of a million people there. That's the Super Bowl on steroids. And they wanted to see Jesus. They heard about Jesus. Many saw the miracles Jesus had. They saw Jesus feed the 5,000. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They saw Jesus give two blind men sight. They saw Jesus doing these things. They saw Jesus forgiving Zacharias, who was just a deceiving little guy, a tax collector who would deceive the people. They saw Jesus doing all these things. So when Jesus was coming in, they thought, we have to see what this is about. And here's what's even crazier. Do you know that during the crucifixion, scholars believe there were about 2 million people here during that time of the crucifixion. How in the world do we know there were 2 million? Because you won't find that number in Scripture. What are you talking about, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. After Jesus was crucified, there is historical documents 10 years after he was crucified that say that there were 260,000 lambs that were slaughtered. Now, how do we know that's 2 million? I'm glad you asked again. What they would do during this time is people would bring the lambs to be slaughtered for the sins of the people, for the sins they had committed. They would think, this will appease God for all the sins that I committed. And then once the lamb was slaughtered, here's what they would do. Celebrate, my sins are forgiven, let me go sin some more. That's what they would do. It was like Mardi Gras. They'd get there, sacrifice the lamb, and just begin to live this crazy, wild life. Now, you could only sacrifice one lamb per ten people. So the fact that there are 260,000 lambs slaughtered gives us the evidence that there are probably over 2 million people there because each lamb represents 10 people. So now you have about 2 million people who are seeing the crucifixion, who are are seeing all this during the Passover. A quarter of a million are seeing Jesus come in. I want you to think about this. Could you imagine that? Like This is the Messiah they always anticipated and dreamed about. So they thought once he comes, everything's going to be better. Some of us live that Christian life. Once I'm a Christian, everything is better. And then you find out very quickly, nope, because there's still sin in the world. Nope, because you still have sin in you. Everything isn't always better when you become a Christian. So they thought when he comes, it gets better. Now I want you to just listen to how he arrives on the scene. In verse 28, and when he had said these things, this is pointing back to the earlier point of the chapter, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, where he was going into Jerusalem was about 
an elevation of 3,000 feet. So they were actually going up to Jerusalem, hiking to Jerusalem. And then when he drew near, in verse 29, they then referenced the Mount of Olives. Now, here's what I want you to see. These, this passage, especially if you're, you're an atheist or even agnostic, this is filled with tons of prophecy and historical evidence that really gives support to who Jesus is. And, and I get it. You can hear that and still say, I still don't believe it. But I want us to point to this phrase right here, the Mount called Olivet. At first glance, you would think it means nothing. Just a mountain with a bunch of olives. This actually has prophetic connotations to it, dating back 500 years to the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah references this in Zechariah 14, speaking of the Mount of Olives and the importance of the Mount of Olives, and the importance of it. Now, what's so important about the Mount of Olives? Not only is it spoken about 500 years prior to this happening, but I want you to see the events that take place on the Mount called Olives. Number one, the entry. I have horrible handwriting, so I'm just going to put, you get it. The entry. Okay, the Messiah is coming in Jerusalem. That was a prophetic statement from Zechariah. Number two, the arrest. It's where Jesus is arrested. Before he gets taken to get crucified on behalf of all of our sins. Number three, the ascension. Don't, you get it, okay? I'm a doctor, so i got to have uh, messy handwriting. So I'm joking. It's always been that ugly. So it's, now you have the ascension. So you have the entry coming into Jerusalem. And, and I want you to stay with me because you're going to really see how this impacts your life. So you have the coming into Jerusalem. You have the um, arrest going on that leads him to his crucifixion. Then you have the ascension. What's the ascension? It's when he gets crucified, raises back to life, then goes back to be with God the Father in heaven. All three of those things take place on the Mount of Olives, okay? Again, dating back to a bunch of prophecies, especially 500 years prior to this point. Okay, so you see that. Now, he sent two disciples. Now, I want you to see this because the way Scripture lays it out didn't just say it. He sent two disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, okay? So now he's telling them, disciple number one, disciple number two, dumb and dumber, here's what I want you to do. Because he knew very well that the same disciples he was sending were going to be the same disciples later on who would probably deny him. Like one of the scholars believes one of these guys was Peter. Peter later on denied Jesus three times. So he sends them to do a heavenly task. I want you to go and I want you to get what? You will find a colt tied which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, you read that and think that's not a big deal. This is saturated with the grace, power, and humility of God the author. Pastor, what do you mean? Here is exactly what's going on. Jesus now is showing what? His foreknowledge and he, he foreknows everything that's going to happen. You understand this? This is a huge theological point here. You cannot miss. At the forefront, you can read and think, oh, okay, he told. No, this is very intentional. God is saying, listen, Jesus has foreknowledge. 
Jesus has, is sovereign. He is in control of this whole thing. So this is what this passage is saying. Now, why is that important? Because Jesus is God in the flesh. Only God is omniscient, all-knowing. Only God is sovereign. Only God is all-powerful. The fact that we see glimpses of this in Jesus proves to people, because the debate out there is not whether or not Jesus lived. We all know he lived. There's historical evidence. The debate out there was, was Jesus the Son of God. The reason why this is important is because what this text is showing us is he has the DNA and attributes of God all in him, which shows that Jesus was God in the flesh. Now, I want you to keep listening because it gets a lot better. He tells them, go get a donkey, go get a colt. I want you to go there, and here's what's going to happen. They're going to ask you, why are you doing this? And just tell them because the Lord wants it, okay? Now, so as he was drawing near already on the way down to the Mount Olives. Did, did I miss one here? Okay, here you go. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, what happened? Exactly what he predicted would happen. This part of the text right here, especially if you're living it, but this part of the text right here should confirm his deity. Do you understand what I'm saying here? This part of the text should now tell us, especially those who were living it, that when Jesus said he had foreknowledge, he predicted he was sovereign, he is in control, that now when they move forward in faith, what happens? Jesus' deity is affirmed and confirmed. Like, there's so many of us, here's my fear with Christians, there's so many of us that stop at verse 30 and 31 because we're too afraid. What if it's not God? Therefore, when God is trying to affirm his deity in your life and how he is sovereign, how he is in control, you miss it because you don't move forward allowing him to prove that he is God in your life. Like, this is the whole faith thing. You have to take a step if you want God to show his power. You, it, it comes with this. You have to. Right? Single guy. You got to ask her on a date. You just got to ask, okay? Like you you got to take that side joke, but you have to take that step. Faith without works is dead faith. Scripture says even the demons have faith and they shudder. Even they believe and they shudder. So, now look, so exactly what he said will happen, happens. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on it. This is a reference to 2 Kings. Again, some more prophetic years before stuff in here. They bring their cloaks. What, is the, what does a cloak represent in Scripture? It represents submission and humility. Listen, this is going to tie together, so stay with me. So I want you to get this picture. Uh, we know they have palm branches that represent joy and victory, right? So they have palm branches, and they're waving it because they're so excited. Daddy's coming home. Here is our father. And he's going to do all kinds of stuff for us. Hosanna, praise his name. He is sent from God. Dad is home. And so they're waving these palm branches. And they begin to put their cloaks on the floor. They probably take it off the, their, their, their backs and they put it on the floor. This is what it shows. I am submitting to the one that I put my cloak down for. And second kings, they did it to Jehu, the other king. They put their cloaks down saying, I'm submitted fully to you. As the king, I'm submitted fully. I'm not going to rebel. 
I'm not going to get angry with you and do things I shouldn't do. I am submitting fully to you. Get this picture. Can you imagine? They're waiting for the Messiah. They're broken. They're, they're tired of hurting. They're tired of getting, getting bullied. They're tired of the political power just ruling over their lives. Here comes the Messiah, and they're thinking, oh, my goodness, he is going to change everything. He's going to come, and he's going he's to beat everybody up for us, and we're going to get back in control. He's going to give me a wife or a spouse. He's going to give me a job. Here he is. It's going to be all over. All my pain is going to go and be done. And they're probably crying, and they're worshiping him. They're so excited. Then he comes on a donkey. The donkeys represented in times of war. When a king would come in on a donkey to any city, it represented that he wanted peace. He doesn't want to fight. Now, why is that significant? Because in this passage, he comes in peace on a donkey, right? His first coming into Jerusalem. His second coming, what does he come on? A white horse. What does a white horse mean? It's time for war. It's time. But he gives them the opportunity for peace first. So all these items are so incredibly significant, and you're about to see what takes place. So here they are. They're, they're spreading their cloaks all on the road. Keep in mind, remember, there were about a quarter of a million people here during this time. I want you to get this picture in your head, because in front of him were thousands and thousands of people who were waiting to see what he can do. Behind him were people who were following him, knowing what he can do. Big difference. Then look what takes place. So as he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mountain of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice. Here they go. This guy is the real deal. How do we know that? Because we've seen the mighty works he can do. Then they quote, here's some more prophetic scripture. Then they quote Psalm 119, verse 26. In fact, they do it a bit differently because if you go to Psalm 119, verse 26, The word king is not actually in there. They put that in there so that everyone can hear he is the real king. So here you go. They're singing this to the top of their lungs. And then here comes some of the Pharisees, some of the haters. And they told him, get them to stop. Get them to stop worshiping you. Get them to stop praising you. Please, somebody, get them quiet. And then here's the way Jesus Responds And I love it. It's like a mic drop moment. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, what is the significance with that moment right there? Okay, let me put this all together. You see the prophecy taking place. Daniel said this would happen exactly 483 years before. Daniel predicted that on this week he would be crucified, which Jesus had to be crucified on that Friday. He had to. It fit the plan. So he, Jesus knew that while he was going through, let's put this all together. Listen to the heart of men. Jesus is coming to a city filled with broken people. Half of these people would say, Hosanna, Hosanna on Sunday. Crucify him, crucify him on Friday. It shows the fickleness of Man, that when we don't get our way or when God doesn't respond the way we think God should respond, we naturally become angry and mad at God, do we not? Because he didn't do what you thought he should have done. 
Therefore, they're let down. So what happens? They start off by saying, Hosanna, we're going to praise him. They end by saying, let's crucify him. The heart of God, I'll put it this way. If they were, if they were Cavs fans, they would have been burning LeBron's jersey. They didn't get much laugh. So when LeBron James, <laughs> there's this whole thing now. When a player leaves their team, uh, the entire city's really upset. So in order to show them how upset they were, uh, they will burn the jersey to say, we hate you, we don't care. But when he was there, man, they applauded him like crazy. If that didn't share the heart of humanity, even in this picture, saying, we love you, we want you, we need you. The days go on and they think, wait, God is not what we thought he was going to be. This Messiah is not doing what we thought he was going to be. On Friday, we hate you, die, crucify him. The heart of man is so fickle, and you and I have been there, right? We've been there where there have been times where we're angry at God because he didn't do something, but then we're praising God. And it's like our walk with God becomes a bit bipolar, just up and down, up and down. Let me show you what probably the average walk looks like. And if if I'm being honest, when I go back and read my journal, I just think, what is wrong with me? Because here's what it looks like. I'm going to be transparent with you. Man, God is so good. Life is awesome. Oh, yes, Lord. And then here comes problems. God, where you at? Where you at, God? Why aren't you ever here for me? Huh? You never hear God. Well, I'm angry at you. Oh, God is good. He is awesome. He is, oh, no. What's going on right now, God? What's, what's happening? What do you, you never, you, you said you would never leave me nor forsake me. You said you were, oh, I, don't, I don't even want to live anymore. Oh, you're good. You're awesome. Praise his name. Oh, what's going on, God? What's right? Oh, I love being married. Do I really got to do it forever? (laughs) In our hearts. God, I love you. You're so good. God, I can't stand you. You're not being the father you're supposed to be to me. And it hurts. And I don't even want to read my Bible. I'm not going to go to church. I'm going to rebel. And I'm going to do the things I know I shouldn't do, God. And I'm going to live in sin. And then you just live right here. I'm going to rebel against God because he doesn't care, so I don't care. Right? You know what's amazing about God? You can throw your little tantrum as I do. We can be bipolar all day long. This represents this chapter. Hosanna. He's here. Oh my gosh. Crucify him. Crucify him. He's not doing what he's supposed to be. Crucify this guy. He failed me. Crucify him. Do you know what's amazing about God? You can holler Hosanna and you can holler crucify him. You know what's amazing about our God is that he's not going to throw these tantrums with you. And while you're throwing these fits and doing this, say, my child, my child, he is consistent, 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 and consistent. His character doesn't change even when yours changes daily. See, the people wanted God's favor. What they got was God's faithfulness. They wanted the favor. They wanted the blessings. They wanted the power. But what they got was his faithfulness. 
So, so while we live life, you will have these moments. And while we respond like this, he responds like this. And the truth is, in this room, there is, I believe, the healthiest place we can be is to walk steadily with God. Now, I'm about to be honest with you guys. What drives me crazy sometimes about myself and about Christians is that some of us never get off our high horse. And you think you put yourself there. And you get drunk off of being on the mountaintop that you forget it was him that pulled you out of the valley. What a shame for the Christians. Like, he is good. He is real good. And he is good even if you're living here. He is good if you're living here. He is consistent. He doesn't change his goodness. He just is good. Do you understand what I'm saying? And then here's what I see with Christians as well. You don't think you deserve to walk with him, so you just you live in that area of sin because you don't think you're worthy of anything else. So you just become a glutton to sin. Right? You just indulge. What does it matter anyway? And now I've sinned so much, he doesn't even want me anymore. Dad's never coming back home. Dad could never want me. I'm too messed up. But the father stays consistent. Even if you're messed up, even if you're not, listen, his love never changes. It's so incredibly consistent. And I want you to think about something. If this was the entry point into Jerusalem, and this was Friday, the crucifixion, here's what I want you to realize is that when he came into Jerusalem, he knew the very same people that were following him would be the people in front of him saying, crucify him. He knew the same people that were doing that stuff of, oh, Hosanna, you're so good. He knew they would be saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. How do we know that, pastor? It's why in scripture it says he wept. This word is not used anywhere else. This is a different kind of wept. It means he mourned over these people because he knew what was coming, yet he saw their hearts. But you know what blows my mind is that regardless of him knowing that they would be here, 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 and here, he stayed committed all the way to the cross saying, I know what I got to do. They can spit on me. They can shame my name. They can fail and live in sin. They can be up and down and bipolar. I know what I got to do. The very people who are denying me and the very people who are hurting me are the people that I'm going to go down the aisle for and die for. I know what I got to do. No one's going to stop me. What drove Jesus? What drove him? It was his love for the sickness of humanity. Like, listen, this is why I tell you, don't, don't, please don't live up here. I'm not saying live in a poverty spiritual mind, but don't you ever forget Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses. You didn't do anything for yourself. And when he found you, he found you jacked up, broken, depressed, suicidal, feeling like you had no hope in your life. And who came through? Jesus came through. You couldn't pull yourself up. Who pulled you up? Jesus. You think you got you that job? You think you got you that spouse? You think you got you what you have? Jesus did it, and he will always do it. It was Jesus. Now, you see my wife. She's out sick today with the kids. They're sick. When, I, when we first got together, I had daddy issues, hardcore. And I was so hurt 
from people who led me down over and over and over and over and over in my life that I was bitter. And every time someone came into my life, I try to push them away. Anybody know what I mean? I see some of y'all looking at their neighbor, your, neighbor, your spouse is like, that's you right there. You listen up. <laughs> but I would, I would push everybody away. And I'll never forget. I wasn't a jerk about it, but I'll never forget. Like, I took my wife through the ringer. I didn't know it then, but the reason why I did it is I wanted to see if she would stick. I wanted to see if she would walk with me long enough to see this sucker's crazy. He is up and down, up and down, up and down. But here's what I felt. Can I be real? Here's what I felt. Here's the way I felt that this way of living depended on who would be around me at that time. That's what I felt like. I I felt like when I was down, nobody wanted to be around me. When I was high, everybody wanted to be around me. So I put her through the ringer to see if she was consistent. Now, some of you are like, that's a great idea. Don't do that. It's horrible. <laughs> I, that's why I'm, I never thought about that. Pastor is so smart with his little doctorate and everything. Oh, you saw so Don't do that. But I'll never forget. I, and she's way out of my league. She had guys lined up to date her. And yet she was with me because she felt like God was calling her to be with me. And she stayed faithful. And so I'll never forget. I met her in August. I proposed in January real quick before she changed her mind. <laughs> you want to got to put a ring on it. And so I, I'll never forget. We, we, had a little, we had a beach wedding. And there was like five people there. My father wasn't there. Nobody's really there. There's five people there. And, and in that moment, she, the little door opens up or whatever, and she comes, she stands at the very end. And I, I'm sitting here, and I was like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. I'm crying. <laughs> I, I got to be, I'm, I'm being transparent. Up to that moment, I thought that, that something's going to happen. She's not going to want me. Like, she ain't going to show up. She's going to change her mind and turn around. Or I'm going to stand here in my last chance outfit, and she ain't going to walk down. I'm going to spend this money, and she's not going to want me. She ain't going to want me. I'll never forget. The door's open. I'm like, oh, my gosh, she's beautiful. And I start tearing up, and I start thinking, I don't know why she wants me. I don't know why she wants me. And she comes down the aisle, and every step's like, she wants me. She really wants me. And she's coming down, and then, and then she gets here, and then we go through the whole thing, for better or for worse, do you do? And I'm still thinking, up to the, I'm still thinking up to this point. I'm not kidding. She can still change her mind and walk off. She says, I do, and we kiss, and I'm thinking, well, she hadn't actually signed the thing yet. <laughs> like, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding with you. It's how jacked up, how jacked up I was. I'm just being real with you. I was, I signed it fast. We're done. It's official. She can never go anywhere now. Because I'm a pastor now. If she wants to leave, she even can't leave now. The reason why I was so scared is because Two things happen. As, as she came down the aisle, I'm being transparent, I just thought like, when she's looking at me right there, I'm 28, already balding, 
have a part-time job. She's been trying to push, I mean, I've been trying to push her away hard. I'm filled with sin. I've already used a lot of drugs. I was in gangs. I made poor decisions. Like, run. What are you doing? Run. Just run. And she kept coming. She just kept coming. And she knew what she was inheriting, but she kept coming. And she kept coming. She kept coming. She kept coming. And she said, I do. Listen, when Christ looks at you, he looks at you as the bridegroom. When he looks at you, he didn't think about how gifted you are, how much money is in your bank account, or how great of a blah, blah, blah. He's not impressed by you. That's not why he went to the cross, it's because he's so impressed by you. Because he can pull back the scales of your heart, and you would be so ashamed. If we all knew the way you think and the way you act and what you've done, right? You'd get in a fetal position if you exposed that about you. And he knew your flaws and he knew how jacked up you were. And he still wanted you. I can't comprehend that. I can't even tell you why he does that. But I will tell you this. He did it. You don't have to worry about, is he going to go back? Is he going to change his mind? You don't have to worry about, is he going to say no? You don't have to worry about, is he still going to opt out? Is he not going to sign the paper? Is he not going to say, I do? Because here's what happened in this moment in Luke chapter 19. What happened is when he came down, he came down and said, I do. I'm in forever, for better or for worse. In order to prove it, I will sign the signature with my blood. Here's my life. Here's my body. If you want me, come and get me because I am forever, ever, ever, ever going to be with you. Through your flaws, through your strengths, here I am. I'll never throw a fit. I will never leave you. I'm with you. Don't you forget it. My goodness, what a good, good God we serve. And here's the truth this morning. Here's my fear. That Jesus, if you can get the image in your head, he's at the end of the altar waiting for some of you to say, I do. And yet you don't think you're good enough. So you'll never stand at the end and you'll never walk down to say, take me. And he wants you. He wants you. He wants you and desires you. Will you say, I do this morning? Here's the truth. There's a heaven. And he's going to come back. And there is a hell. You don't get to the Father unless it's through the Son. So the Son is waiting to say, will you take me? Because I'll take you to the Father. Let's pray together.